This is Sermon 9 of 16 Sermons on Grace by Christopher Love. The text is 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We proceed now unto a second case of conscience concerning strength of grace, which is this. Whether strength of grace may be consistent with strength of lust and corruption in the heart. In the answering whereof I shall speak to these particulars. 1. When may corruptions be said to be strong? 2. Why those that have strong grace have many times strong corruptions? 3. What strong corruptions are they that those that are strong in grace are most subject unto? 4. In what cases and with what limitations may strength of corruptions consist with strength of grace? Question 1. When may corruptions and lusts be said to be strong in the soul? First answer, when sins are committed with complacency. Sin at first is like a snake that is almost starved by reason of the cold and is very weak and feeble. But if it be laid in the bosom, then it gathers strength and after a while receives and becomes a delight in the soul. If thou wert at first troubled at sin, and afterwards takest pleasure in sin, it is a sign that sin hath a great hand over thee. Thus God complains of his people, What hath my beloved to do in my house? When thou dost evil, then thou rejoicest. Jeremiah 12.15 We may know the power and strength of corruption in us by sin's activity in us, and by our cheerfulness and complacency in sin. Second answer, by the frequency of sin. As a relapse into a disease argues the strength of that peccant humor in the body, so reiterated and multiplied acts of the same sin argue the power and strength of that sin in our hearts. Corruption gathers strength even as grace doth by the frequent acting and exercise of it. Third answer, when sin is persisted in, against the checks of conscience. As it argues the strength of a stream that it beats down before it, whatsoever bank would check the, the course of it, so it also argues that there is a strong current of corruption in thy soul that bears down before it all the warnings, checks, and reproofs of conscience. Question 2. Why have those that have the strongest graces many times also the strongest corruptions? First answer, it ariseth from the natural temperature and constitution of the body, which doth dispose men to some sin more than another. Although they have such eminency of grace, and hence it is that those who are naturally and constitutionally passionate and given to anger, though they may have a great measure of grace, yet what ado they have to bridle in their anger. What a do to be greatly angry and not greatly sinful. 
and so such whose temperature inclines them to be lustful, though they have much grace, yet all little enough to suppress lustful thoughts and wanton looks in them. Second, God suffers this to humble his people and to keep them humble under the great measures of grace. It is observable in nature that those creatures which have the most excellency in them have something also of defect and deformity in them, as if the God of nature did it to keep them humble. The peacock hath glittering feathers and yet black feet. The swan hath white feathers, but under that a black skin. The eagle hath many excellencies, quick flight and a high flight, but yet very ravenous. The camel and elephant are great and stately creatures, but of a deformed shape. So it is in the state of grace. God does suffer some strong and unsubdued corruptions to remain in them who have not only truth, but strength of grace. And this is to keep them humble. Thus Paul, after his great revelations, had a messenger of Satan to buffet him, and a thorn in the flesh to afflict and keep him humble. 1 Corinthians 12.7 The thorn in the flesh did let out the impostumated matter of pride out of his heart, and the consideration of their corruptions doth much affect the hearts of the godly, that they become first more condescending and compassionate to the weak, Second, they do depend less upon their own righteousness. They see it is in vain to think of establishing their own righteousness and that it is too weak a foundation to lay the weight stress of their salvation upon. The covering is too narrow and the bed is too short for them to rest quietly upon. And third, they are hereby brought to think better of others than of themselves yea, to judge themselves the least of saints and the greatest of sinners. The third answer, from Satan's malice, who if he can draw out great corruptions from them who are eminent in grace, he hereby aims to blemish religion and to darken the honor of profession, and in this case usually fights against none, great or small, but the king of Israel. That is, such as are eminent for holiness. When David fell into those great sins of murder and adultery, Satan had a main end granted him to make the way of true religion stink and be abhorred. Second, hereby Satan hath his end to embolden those that are weak to sin. The sins and great miscarriages of such as Our great professors are great stumbling blocks in the way of the weak to make them fall. Third, hereby the peace and purity of conscience is violated. The devil will play at small game rather than at no game. And if he cannot prevail to damn thy soul, yet he will endeavor to disquiet thy conscience. Third question, what are those great corruptions and sins into which strong believers are incident. First, to lose those strong affections which they had at their first conversion. Holy Greenham complained that it was very difficult to keep together his old discretion and young zeal. Young Christians, as had 
been already observed, have strong affections and but weak judgments. Their heat is more than their light. Their present apprehension and sense is great and high. Their experience little and low. And so also strong Christians who may have much grace, yet the flood and flush of affections may be much abated. And it is the fault of old professors that they do not labor to maintain the primitive vigor and vivacity of their first affections. They are too apt to leave their first love. Yet we must know that they do not decay so as to be bankrupts in grace. In the godly the decay and declining though it may be great, Yet it is neither total nor final. Though he may fail, yet he is not a bankrupt. He hath still a stock remaining, which can never be quite spent, a fountain which can never be quite dry. He hath in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. John 4.24 The water of a fountain may be muddied, but it will clear itself again. It may be dammed up in one place, but it will break out in another. So it is with grace. A tree, you know, in winter season, the fruit and leaves fall off and it seems as if it were dead, but there is life in the root. So it is in Christians. Their beauty and blossom may fall off. Their fruit dry up. Their leaves drop off. The beauty, the exercise and fruits of grace may cease for a time, and yet the root of the matter is in them. Job 19.28 It often fares with old professors as it did with old David, of whom it is said that all the clothes he did wear could not get or keep heat in him. So they, all the duties they perform, and all the ordinances they enjoy, cannot keep up that youthful heat of vigorous affections which they once had. Many of God's children have not now, as they once had, such complacency in God, such fervency in prayer, such attention in hearing, such delight in Sabbaths, such mournfulness and tenderness of spirit, such hatred of sin. Now they have not such aggravating thoughts of sin as in former times, nor the occasions unto sin so avoided as formerly. How many are there who heretofore looked on every sin as a heinous evil, but now do not so? Time was when every gnat seemed a camel, and every moat a beam, and every molehill a mountain. But now they can extenuate and excuse their sin. Heretofore the most pleasing sin was abominable, the smallest detestable, and the lightest intolerable. But it is otherwise now, through spiritual decays and abatement in our affections. There are many heretofore, when they fell into sin, were wont to walk sadly, to sigh deeply, weep bitterly, pray affectionately. But now do not these things with those warm and working affections as formerly. The time was when many professors of religion prepared themselves for holy duties with more care attended to them with more diligence, delighted in them with more complacency, and gained more profit and edification by them than now they do. And that's the first sin that those who have grace, both in truth and strength, are apt to fall into. 
that is, spiritual decay. Second answer, such as our strong Christians are very subject to spiritual pride and to be highly conceited of their own gifts, parts and graces. Spiritual pride is a secret spiritual corruption that is in the most spiritual and gracious heart. It is a bad fruit that grows on, a, on the best root. There is nothing better than grace, and there is nothing more abominable than sin, and there is no sin so bad as pride. And there are none so apt to fall into the sin of pride as they that have much grace. And there is nothing weakens a strong Christian more than pride, and nothing argues weakness more than this boasting. Third, to behave themselves with contempt and superciliousness towards weak Christians is an ordinary fault of the strong. There is not any one thing in Scripture more often mentioned than this that we should not despise or discourage the weak, which notes an aptness in the strong to be faulty herein. Let us not judge one another any more. Romans 14 which intimates they were wont to do so before. Spiritual pride is a root of bitterness which bears these two bitter fruits, an overvaluing of ourselves and an undervaluing of other men's persons and gifts. Fourth, strong Christians are apt to put too much duty and task upon the weak. Matthew 9, 14, 15. John's disciples failed in this towards the disciples of Christ about fasting. Strong Christians should deal tenderly with the weak. They should excuse their failings, conceal their weaknesses, commend their performances, cherish their forwardness, resolve their doubts, bear their burdens, and hereby make the way of religion to be lovely and amiable to them whereas by their too much austerity the weak are disheartened at their first entrance. Fifth, to be content with measures of grace. How apt are they that have grace to say in one sense, as he said in another, Soul, take thine ease, thou hast goods laid up for many years. Luke 12.19 And hereupon many go slack and careless in holy duties, and do not improve ordinances for the increase of their graces. The best of Christians are apt to fall into this satiety than which nothing can be more prejudicial to the soul. The devil tempts those that have but a little grace to think they have none and those that have more grace to think they have enough. The best are apt to mistake themselves in this to think that there is a just dimension and full growth of grace attainable in this life. Whereas indeed the best improvement of having much grace is to desire more and not to be satisfied with any measure of grace till we come to a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4.13 And that's not attainable in this life. Perfection is the aim of this life, but it is the reward of another life. We should endeavor after perfection in grace, but we shall not attain it till grace be perfected in glory. Question 4. In what cases and with what limitations may strength of corruptions consist with strength of grace? 
The resolving of this question is of very great use to the soul. For that soul that is overmastered with strong corruptions may not only question the strength of his grace, but the being of it. How may I then know that I have both the truth and strength of grace in me, though I am overpowered sometimes by strong and prevailing corruptions? Answer. If you maintain in you a strong opposition against your corruptions, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, but doth the spirit lust against the flesh. Galatians 5.17 Though you cannot fully subdue sin, yet do you strongly oppose it? If so, there is grace, and strength of grace too, which is able to make and hold up this opposition. An uncontrolled subjection unto sin argues the strength of sin, but an irreconcilable opposition of sin argues the strength of grace. Strength of grace is not so much seen in those particular acts of suppression and actual overcoming of it, as in that constant and habitual frame of heart in the opposition of sin. Second, though sin be strong, yet grace may be strong too in thy soul. If thou hast a strong measure of humiliation, though thy sin be great, if thy sorrow be great too, it evidences that thy grace is so also. It was great grace in Manasseh that he humbled himself greatly, though he had been a very great sinner. First Chronicles 23.12 Third, if thou hast strong cries to God against thy sins, this argues grace, though it be ready to be deflowered by corruption. If when corruptions and temptations prevail, thou prayest to the Lord with strong cries and tears, this argues grace, yea, in the strength of grace. Deuteronomy 22:26 and 27. For, if thou hast strong affections that carry thee to Christ, certainly thou hast grace, though thy strong corruptions often carry thee from Christ. Peter had more infirmities and corruptions and sins than all the disciples besides, excepting Judas. He took Christ aside, gave him carnal counsel, and said as to his sufferings, Far be it from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. For which Christ said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. Matthew 16.22 He dreams of merit and boasts of what he had done for Christ. As it is observed of him when he said to Christ, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Matthew 19.27 Peter, of all the disciples, was the most confident of his own strength and boasts uh, what he would do and suffer for Christ. Though all men should be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. And if I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Matthew 26.33-35 Nay, and presently after this confident undertaking, Peter denies Christ and swears and curses that he knew him not. Some observe that Peter's cursing was not only his cursing of himself, if he knew Christ, but that he also cursed Jesus Christ, that so he might appear to them to be none of his disciples. And yet, notwithstanding all this, Peter had not only truth and reality, 
but eminency and strength of grace. For though temptations and corruptions did sometimes prevail, yet he had strong affections toward Jesus Christ. He did and suffered that which few or none of the other disciples did. He was the man that of all the disciples wept most bitterly for his sins. Peter was the first that ran to the sepulchre and went in unto the sepulchre to see what was become of Christ. He was the man who, hearing that Christ was risen and on the seashore, leapt into the sea for joy. He was the man that made the first sermon and first preached the gospel after the ascension of Christ. He had that love to Christ which was as strong as death, for he suffered death and was crucified, as say the ecclesiastical writers, but would not be crucified but with his heels upwards, deeming it too great an honor to be crucified in the same manner that his Lord and Master was. So that the strength of his affections did argue, notwithstanding his great failings, the strength of grace in him. To make application of what hath been spoken in this case of conscience, though in the cases before mentioned, strength of grace may be consistent with strength of corruptions, yet there are other cases wherein they are altogether inconsistent. One, when the strength and workings of corruptions are not clearly discovered to the soul, for grace, always as a light set up in the soul, doth discover the darkness of corruption. Second, where corruptions are not sensibly bewailed, it is to be feared that there is not strength of grace. Third, where occasions to those strong prevailing sins and corruptions are not heedfully avoided. Certainly, if thou hast grace to make thee sensible of what corruptions thou art incident unto, thy grace will make thee walk so circumspectly as to avoid all occasions leading thereunto. Four, if they be not strongly resisted, and the beginnings of each corruption not diligently suppressed, in this case strength of grace and strength of corruption are utterly inconsistent. 5. Though there may be strong grace and strong corruption in the soul, yet the reign of any one corruption is utterly inconsistent with grace and the strength of it. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 6.12 and 7.23 Which is not to be understood in the antinomist sense that believers are not under the mandatory power of the moral law. But the meaning of the word law, as Beza interprets it, is the law of sin. And so the Apostle Paul in chapter 7.23 mentions a law in his members that did war against the law of his mind and did bring him into captivity to the law of sin. That is, sin would have swayed him with the power and force of a law. And this argued grace and the strength of grace in Paul, that though he was overborne by the strength of corruption and sin and taken prisoner by it, yet he never yielded to it as to a lawful sovereign. For so he adds, verse 25, so then with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. It may be said that of the corruptions in God's children, 
what was showed to Daniel concerning the beasts. They had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season. Daniel 9.12 6. When we say there is a consistency between grace and corruption, it would be understood of spiritual and inward corruption as hardness of heart, spiritual pride, deadness in duties. For into gross and external open acts of evil, strong Christians do seldom fall. 7. We must also be further informed that if we consider particular acts of sin, some one lust may seem to be more strong in a godly Christian than in a mere moral man, as for instance in the case of lust, when we consider how David did abuse his neighbor's wife and how Abimelech would not touch another man's wife, one would have judged David the heathen and Abimelech the believer, and therefore the strength of grace or corruption must not be judged by any one particular act when some impetuous temptation hath prevailed. Eighth and lastly, we are to know that a corruption may be really weakened when sensibly strong, as man in a fever is seemingly strong but is really weak. So corruption may then be most enfeebled when in our apprehension it is most enraged. It may rave and rage most when it is in crucifying. As a coal glows most just before it's going out, a candle burned down in the socket gives a blaze a little before it be extinct. So it is when corruption is ready to expire. As in a mere moral man, sin may be restrained when it is not subdued. Corruption may be quiet where it is not mortified. So in a regenerate person, it may be subdued and mortified, where yet it may rage as if unrestrained. A man's last gasp may be the strongest breath. So when corruption is ready to give up the ghost, it may seem to breathe strongest. As a bird may flutter when his neck is broken, so sin may seemingly resist grace. When the power, power strength, and life of it, it is utterly broken. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. 
You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.